Perhaps one of the most confusing parts of the New Testament is its relationship with the Old Testament. Typically, we see ourselves as Christians who are no longer bound by the laws found within the Old Testament. But in this upcoming Gospel reading, Jesus says that the law will not pass away. Not one letter, not one stroke. How are we to understand this? What did Jesus mean? The bottom line? To appreciate how the law will not pass away, we have to understand not what the Old Testament is, but rather whom it's about. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. Welcome back to The Way Podcast. I'm your host, Father Dustin. This upcoming Sunday in the Orthodox Church, we celebrate the Fathers of the Fourth Ecumenical Council. The reading that's assigned for this commemoration comes from Matthew. Here it is. You are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew five fourteen through 19 The reason this particular reading was selected for the fathers seems pretty straightforward. This reading says that we should be the light of the world. And the fathers, in many ways, were lights in the world, in their time and place. We usually think of them as proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ through their preaching and teaching. And as fathers of the Fourth Ecumenical Council, the Church thinks of them as lights in the sense that they articulated what we believe about Jesus Christ, especially concerning His divinity. Here's a part of what they said at that council. We all teach harmoniously that Christ is the same, perfect in Godhead, the same, perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man, the same as a reasonable soul and body, homoousios, that means of one nature, with a father in Godhead, and the same homoousios with us in manhood, acknowledged in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The light those fathers shined upon the world was an articulation of who Christ was. But since this podcast focuses on scripture rather than theology, I'm much more interested in the questions the biblical passage raises for us, rather than how the church uses this particular passage in its liturgy. Now, this passage raises a lot of different questions, including what is the light? 
that's supposed to shine before others? And how do we make that light so shine? But for today's podcast, I'm much more interested in the law and how Jesus is not abolishing the law. First, we need to define what Jesus means by the law and the prophets. This is actually a technical term. He's referring to, in part, to the Torah, which is the first five books of Moses. Sometimes we refer to these books as the Pentateuch, which is the Greek word referencing five. The word law is a translation of a Hebrew word, which is Torah. While this word does mean law, it can also be translated as instruction. The first five books of Moses aren't just a law, but also God's instruction for how to live our lives, or the instruction for obtaining life in the age to come. This puts a slightly different spin on it, if you ask me. It makes it less legalistic, and instead gives a sense of pointing out the way in which we should walk. In other words, it's wisdom that's been passed down. Now, the prophets, of course, refers to the prophets of the Old Testament. But in the Hebrew Bible, the prophets are thought of in three different categories. One, the former prophets. Two, the latter prophets. And three, the twelve minor prophets. This is a distinction most English Bibles don't make, and because we don't, we are familiar with two of the categories, but not the third. We are familiar with the latter prophets, which we often think of as the major prophets. These are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. We are also familiar with the twelve minor prophets. These are Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Interestingly, this category was probably thought of as consisting of one book, rather than twelve different books. This would have been the Book of the Twelve. But now I'm digressing. So if we are familiar with the latter or major prophets, and we're familiar with the twelve minor prophets, what or who are the former prophets, and where do we find their works? Well, you actually already know them, you just don't realize it. The former prophets are typically known to us as Joshua, Judges, 1st to 2nd Samuel, and 1st and 2nd Kings. The problem is that we usually think of these books as historical books, but in their conception by the original authors, or at least by the redactors of the Old Testament, they were thought of as prophets. Now think about that. What does that mean? How does that alter your perception of what Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings are saying? This, of course, as you can realize, puts a different spin on the whole thing. So, the prophets, in their entirety, is a reference, most likely, to the former prophets, the latter prophets, and the minor prophets. So, when Jesus references the law and the prophets in the Gospel of Matthew, he's referencing two-thirds of what we call the Old Testament. The only portion he doesn't mention is what the Hebrew Bible calls the writings. This third section of the Old Testament includes the Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Songs, Ruth, Lamentations, Ecclesiastes, Esther, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. But we won't deal with those for now. It's beyond the scope of today's passage. Now that we know what Jesus means when he says the law and the prophets, we can turn our attention to what he says 
about them. For reference, let's hear that short section again. Here it is from Matthew. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, most of us who are practicing Christians, at least, tend to think of the law as something that's past or something that's been done away with, something we no longer have to follow. And to back up this claim, we usually cite something from the letters of Paul, such as this passage from Galatians. This is chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. Did you receive the Spirit by doing works of the law, or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish, having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing, if it really was for nothing? Well then, does God supply you with the Spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law, or by your believing what you heard? So it seems returning to the law would be going backwards, going back to the flesh, as it were. So why would Jesus say that the law had to endure, and what exactly is being accomplished? Well, the way I look at it is that Jesus is saying two different things about the law. One, the law must be accomplished, whatever that means. And two, the law must be followed, and we must teach others to continue teaching the law. Today, however, due to time constraints, I'm going to look at the first question. What does Jesus mean by the law must be accomplished? Next week, we can take a look at the second question and explore that further. So, we tend to look at the Old Testament as a sort of history book. Here's the narrative of how the world came to be about, the history of the people of Israel from their origins to their failed kingdom to predictions about the coming Savior. When we look at the Old Testament in this way, it becomes a what is the Old Testament about sort of question. It's about the history of the world from the beginnings up until Jesus. But this approach isn't the way the fathers of the church thought about it. And, I'd argue, it's not the approach the Old Testament authors or even the New Testament authors intended. So, if the question isn't what, then what's the right question? If we recall the story of the Ethiopian eunuch, we get the answer. In the book of Acts, the Apostle Philip comes across an Ethiopian eunuch who is reading the book of Isaiah. Here's that story. So Philip ran up to it and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked, Do you understand what you are reading? He replied, How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb silent before its shearer, he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him, for who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with the scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. That's Acts 8, 30-35. Did you catch the eunuch's question? It was about 
whom does the prophet say this? In other words, it's a recognition of the Old Testament not as a narrative of people or a history, but a mosaic of words in which we encounter the crucified and risen Christ. Of course, the eunuch doesn't understand Isaiah until he has heard the apostolic proclamation, which in theology we call the kerygma. In other words, he had to hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, before he was able to encounter Christ in the Old Testament. So what exactly was that good news, that good news that Philip preached to him? Well, it wasn't the story about Jesus' life as we think about it. The evangelists who wrote the Gospels were not thinking in terms of biography, and I know this is difficult for modern hearers to grasp. Instead, the good news was, and still is, the proclamation that Christ died and rose from the dead. Here's how Paul puts it. This is in Corinthians. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me. No, there's very little about Christ's human life there. So the apostolic proclamation is a message of a crucified Christ who rose from the dead. This is the gospel that comes from the apostles and is handed down to us today. It's not necessarily a biography, but a proclamation that Christ is risen. So when we begin with this proclamation of faith, and yes, it is a proclamation of faith, not a news story with historical proof. Only when we start there can we go back to the law and the prophets and see about whom it speaks. To put it more bluntly, it's only when we start with the crucified Christ that we're able to see Christ in the Old Testament. And when we're able to do this, we're able to see who Christ is that he's the Son of God, who is crucified for our sins in order to grant us redemption and life in the age to come. At this point, I want to briefly turn to one of the early church fathers who also stresses this point. Here's St. Irenaeus of Lyon. This is against the heresies 517.4. This word then, which was hidden from us, did the dispensation of the tree, that is the cross, make manifest... So let me say that again. This word then, which was hidden from us, did the dispensation of the tree make manifest. As we have said, for as we lost it by means of a tree, by means of a tree again was it made manifest to all, showing the height, the length, and the breadth in itself. And as one of our predecessors observed, through the extension of the hands gathering together the two peoples to one God. In other words, St. Irenaeus is saying Christ has always been present with us in the Old Testament, but was hidden until Christ was revealed through the cross. Then we could go back and see Christ there. Here's another uh, section from Against the Heresies, this time 426.1. This is what St. Irenaeus says. 
For every prophecy before its fulfillment is nothing but an enigma and an ambiguity to men. But when the time has arrived and the prediction has come to pass, then it has an exact exposition. And for this reason, when at this present time the law is read by the Jews, it is like a myth, for they do not possess the explanation of all things which pertain to the human advent of the Son of God. And of course, that explanation, of course, is that kurigma, that proclamation of Christ crucified. St. Irenaeus continues, But when it is read by Christians, it is a treasure, the it being the Old Testament. It is a treasure hid in a field and brought to light by the cross of Christ, and explained, both enriching and understanding of men, and showing forth the wisdom of God, and making known his dispensations with regard to man, and prefiguring the kingdom of Christ, and preaching in anticipation the good news of the inheritance of the holy Jerusalem." So, what does all of this mean? Well, it means a few different things. And a few of these things takes us into a deep discussion of how the four Gospels were created. They were written according to Scripture. That means that Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't know who Christ was from his walking around in Galilee and Judea, but rather through the cross and then finding Christ in the Old Testament. In this sense, we should think of the Gospels more as a homily or a theological paper explaining who Christ is rather than a historical account of actions. And I realize this is a different way of thinking about the Gospels than what we're used to. But the ancient mind wasn't concerned about a news report or a newspaper story in the way we are. That is, they weren't writing biography as we think of biography. What they knew is that they had encountered a crucified Christ, and they wanted to know what that means, who that was. Of course, this claim could fill an entire podcast or seminary class all by itself. The point is, is that an encounter with Christ was never simply about meeting Christ walking around 2,000 years ago. Instead, an encounter with Christ is hearing the apostolic proclamation and then encountering him in Scripture. If Christ is encountered in Scripture, it means that Christ has always been present through history, whether the reader was aware of it or not. It also means that we are of no disadvantage by being 2,000 years removed from the time period of the cross when Christ was crucified. Why? Because the encounter that the evangelists had, the encounter the early church fathers had, is the same sort of encounter with Christ that we can have by searching Scripture in order to discover Him. One way to think about all of this is in this way. Imagine the Old Testament is a mosaic. Yes, one of those pictures you see in the ancient churches. The individual pieces of a mosaic, by the way, are called tessera. So imagine various stories and prophecies in the Old Testament as the individual tessera. Because of the proclamation of the cross, we are able to arrange the tessera in such a way as to discover Christ. His image becomes clear to us. It's like a modern-day puzzle. The message of the cross is the picture on the front of the box, which allows us to fit the pieces together properly in order to finish the puzzle and see the picture. However, if we don't have the picture on the box or the proclamation of the crucified Christ, we can't arrange the puzzle pieces properly. Or in the case of a mosaic, we can't arrange the tessera properly. In fact, we could end up arranging them in the wrong way and getting a picture of a fox 
and then mistaking that for the image of a king. By the way, this is the example that Irenaeus uses in his writings. I know this is probably a more advanced way of thinking, and an Eastern way of thinking, an ancient Eastern way of thinking. Typically, we think of Jesus' life as recorded in the Gospels as we think of a news report. Jesus did this, then that, and eventually this is what happened. However, for the ancient mind, and from the mindset of the evangelists, the apostles, and the early church fathers, Jesus' life and the way it's written in the New Testament is an encounter with the Old Testament after hearing the good news of Christ being crucified and then rising from the dead. So back to our original scriptural passage, which said, For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What does this mean? Well, in the way we've been thinking about it, it means that the law and the prophets contain Christ. They aren't a set of future predictions, as we might think about it as modern Americans. Instead, it's a mosaic in which Christ is contained and encountered. And as I said, this is good news for us because it means we can turn to Scripture and by hearing it proclaimed, we too can encounter the living Lord. It also means that if we neglect the Old Testament or if a letter of it were to pass away, we'd be losing sight not just of words, but of Christ himself. So next week, God willing, we'll continue our exploration of the specific passage and we'll explore what it means to follow the law that second aspect of what Christ said. Are we still required as Christians to follow every aspect of the law? What did Jesus mean and what does he expect of us? So until then, God bless.